to kick off season two of the Phantom Jukebox, we go back to the day the music died. We find out who the key players were, how the fateful day got its name, and the impact it has on music today. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. This is the Phantom Jukebox and the beginning of season two of the show. Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm Ty Lindsay. And I'm Joe Shannon. And we're two musicians that dive into the world of music. Their history. Mysteries. And, and all of the above. All, everything cool about music. <laughs> it, has been, it has been a few months. It's been a while. I Ooh. like that we're back, though. I am very glad to be back. I like it was. I was putting this setup back together, and I was like, "I, I missed this. I, I missed. I missed learning about really weird music history." And today is no uh, no shortage. And if you'd like to learn about more crazy stories that we've covered in season one, you can find them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Good Pods, uh, Google Play, uh, anywhere that you can find any major streamer and uh if those streaming platforms happen to have a rating uh some kind of rating feature apple and spotify do leave us five stars and uh you know what your favorite episode was what you're hoping for for season two what you think of us we would really appreciate it it's a small thing to do and it's a simple thing to do but it means a lot to us on this end and allows uh, more opportunities to open up, uh, open up for the show. Oh yeah. It, it really affects the channel and how we can progress and get better. Um, you can also give us a talking to at, give, uh, give us a stern talking to. Give us a talking to at uh, Twitter, at Phantom Jukebox underscore Facebook at Phantom Jukebox and come follow us on Instagram at Phantom Jukebox podcast and TikTok Phantom Jukebox podcast. Come and we're all over the place. Come and wag your finger at us in those social platforms. Yeah. The confangled light boxes. <laughs> so um we're just gonna jump right into it. This is a this is a jam-packed episode uh for episode one. And Joe. Yes. How much do you know about the day the music died? Are you familiar with that term? I no, not at all. Like I didn't know music. I know uh, a lot of people think rock is dead, but the day the music died, I didn't. I didn't know that happened. According to Huey Lewis, the old boy's barely oh, breathing. Well, then it's true. He's still alive. He's just barely breathing. Um, <laughs> no, if, if, are you familiar with like Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and the Big Bopper? Uh, not the Big Bopper, but I. So, like, are you familiar with, like, how, like, the, the plane crash? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But not much about the specifics of each person or the details of the crash so much, yeah? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a good Buddy Holly fan, and I knew about the plane crash, but that was about it. Okay. So, in this episode, we're going to go into really, really brief backgrounds of Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. 
Um, then we're going to talk about, you know, how, you know, why they were together. We're going to talk about why they got on a plane. We're going to talk about what happened in the crash. And then to kind of wrap up, I think towards the end, um, a little bit of information about the plane, a little mm. bit. It's kind of, I, I, I mean, this study, it's po- what happened, what we learned about the plane, uh, or specifically that model plane came later, but it's an interesting note. Um, is, is Big Popper a musician? Yes. yes. Okay. Cause that sounds like a mob name. Like okay. Irish <laughs> yeah. or, uh, Italian mob boss. It was uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Allen's, and uh, the Big Bopper. The Big Bopper. He was, a, he was the, the bouncer that made sure they got their uh, sock hop money. Hey, boss, the Big Bopper's here. The Big Bopper. <laughs> got your tribute money for the Bopper. <laughs> He's the God Bopper. <laughs> but yes, he was a... Uh, well, we'll learn about him in a minute. Okay, okay. But he was a musician. But not only just. But first, let's learn about Richie Valens. Mm. So Richard Stephen, and pardon me, I'm going to do my best. Uh, Valenzuela. There's a V-A-L-E-N-Z-U-E-L-A. Valenzuela, I believe. Born May 13th, 1941. Um, was known professionally as Richie Valens and was, America's, uh, was an American guitarist, singer, and songwriter. By the way, these are going to be really brief because we got three. Okay, yeah. So each person probably needs their own episode to really get into like the, because each of these individuals, just to start to break away, but each of these individuals did so much in so little amount of time. Yeah. And these artists were just in the budding parts of what were going to be really incredible careers. Yeah, and I think most artists, most musicians back in that day, we're all very interesting. You know, it's like getting to that level of fame and success um, and having just good musician careers back in the time was uh, the time. back in the time. Uh, they're all just interesting characters. Yeah, it was um, not to say that it's all like mapped out now. A lot of it is, but it was kind of the Wild West. There's an episode I do want to do eventually on like the the record companies in particular. Of, yeah. of old the golden age oh, of music the golden age uh and the uh it literally wild west of that but that we'll see if that turns into an episode but this is the era these guys are in uh the 50s and stuff and each of these guys are super young like uh richie valens is uh uh this the story takes place in uh, february of 1959 so he's only 17 years old oh wow richie valens um, he, he, the plane crash happened when he was eight months into his musical career. Oh, wow. Like he was just like, just getting started, getting big, getting a name for himself. And it was just snuffed out so quickly. But what I think the silver lining, I guess what we can, it's really hard to find a silver lining in this, but like, I, he did so much in that amount of time. Like what what he was able to accomplish in that amount of time was so great. Yeah. Uh, He's, I mean, there's the movie La Bamba that was made about Richie Valens. Uh, The song La Bamba was just a a massive success. I mean, you know, post for his post for him, but his legacy became immortal because of that song. He did so much in such a short amount of time. Uh, I I, I wish we could have seen how, 
all of their career, it's just going to blossom even further. Yeah. But I feel like it's also a, a high percentage of uh, musicians, especially in that era, that um, after their like first year of being of like growing as a musician, it's like you have that point after the first year of like either you can still be on the straight and narrow and go for a long time or you kind of get corrupted by being famous and, you know, you go down the path of like you're still famous, but now there's drugs involved and there's we did. It's, see a, it's a dangerous era that first year. After that first year. It is. Yeah. I mean, um, we kind of, I mean, no hard numbers, but they, I mean, Elvis is somebody that was yeah, uh, going around this time. And actually, uh, well, well, very, very briefly, he enters this story, like briefly, briefly. Okay. But this is also, and like to put it in context here, this is in the time of like, you know, Elvis is dominating uh, mm, just yeah. rock and roll music. So rock and roll music's huge. And these are people that are getting their names on the board along with the growing uh, presence of rock music. Man, that's got to suck for other musicians that were trying to get famous while Not, Elvis was famous, well, like during the height of Elvis. Well, Elvis kind of took the brunt force of forging the, well, he didn't forge the genre, but like he was, he didn't invent the genre or he did. He also didn't invent the music style that he was, you know, yeah he was taking a lot from black culture, like yeah. a lot. So he wasn't inventing really anything, but he was able to get it into so many ears. And he was kind of taking the brunt force of all the criticism for all the things I mean, that he was doing, but he carved a path for these people. Yeah. He did kind of invent like being that famous in America, you know, yeah, cause would, like I the Beatles so. were that famous in, in Europe. Um, later on, I think. Yeah. Because uh, in the time of Elvis, uh, at least in the beginning, they were the clean-cut Beatles. And mm. I think it's later on towards the 60s, probably like basically like right after this era. Yeah. Um, it would be like the 60s towards the 70s where we get like the long hair, like uh, trippy drug Beatles. When yeah. I think they blew up a lot around that era, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Like they were big, but... Yeah, I <laughs> got confirmation from Dakota. They were, in fact, big. They were, in fact, a name to be known. So uh, back to Valens. Um, so he was eight months into his just blossoming musical yeah. career, and he just had so much raw talent to be recognized so early. 17, man. Um, he was born in L.A., and uh, again, he... Uh, his big his big song that he had in that time was La Bamba, uh, which he adapted from a Mexican folk song. Uh, he transformed the song into one with a rock rhythm and beat, and it became a hit in 1958. Wow. Just starting, man. Yeah. Uh, making Valens a pioneer in the Spanish rock and roll movement. Because, I mean, there's Elvis and a lot of, like, I mean, the bopper and Buddy Holly, and you imagine what those guys look like. Imagine Richie Valens being basically like the only Spanish guy in rock and roll at the time. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that was probably like their, finally like their idol. Like, he's like, yes, there's, there's, there's a Spanish dude in rock. Finally. Like yeah. he's, he was like the first guy mm. to blow up that big and be accepted on that level. You know, that's cool. Cause there might've been other guys, but Richie Valens was the one that like cut through. Yeah. And people were like, this is actually really good. I should open my horizons a little bit. 
He did have a second song called Donna. Um, and uh, in 2001, and this is 40 years after the event, Valens was, I can't, I can't pronounce this word, posthumously. Uh, basically, in 2001, he was inducted into the Hall and Roll Rock and uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, cool! I'm glad he got it in 2001 when Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of still had some rev- rev- yeah. reverence to it. Yeah, because now, like Dolly, well, Dolly Parton in season one, uh, was like, "I don't deserve to be here because I am a country artist, a damn good country artist, but country nonetheless." And they're like, "No, you're in." A little more about Valens, um, Richie Valens. He's a self-taught musician who often improvised new lyrics and added new riffs to popular songs while he was playing, which is a very brave thing to do. Mm. For me, like I like to, I, I like to rehearse the crap out of what we're going to play, um, especially our music or any covers we're going to do, and that's what I play on stage. I generally don't. There's practice, and then there's rehearsal. Yeah. And rehearsal is what's going to happen on stage. So there's no, no new things for me enter the rehearsal phase of a show. So to have somebody that's brave enough to do that on stage, my hat's off to you. I think that though being a front man has kind of that, uh, when you're like the guitar player, singer, and like main guy on the stage, you kind of have that freedom to change things up just a little bit to maybe fit the situation depending on what venue you're at. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely some adaptability and being uh, like fluid like that as it's a, it shows, it shows being well-rounded and uh, a very good performer, which this is what these guys did to like eat. So yeah, there's a difference. There's a difference in like having a nine to five and then going out to play. And then if we don't play good, we don't get paid. and I don't eat. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot more writing in their situation which drove them to do what they had to do later on on the tour. We're going to talk about that. They went on Mm. very, very sad. He was known as the little Richard of San Fernando uh, by the kids in the area and uh, swayed by the little Richard comparison, Bob Keen, who is the owner and president of the uh, Delphi records in Hollywood uh, went to see Ven to see Richie Valens play uh, a Saturday morning matinee at a movie theater in San Fernando, which sounds dope. To play a to play a, a, a movie theater, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. That would be cool. Uh, impressed, he invited Valens to audition at his home in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. So the the, <laughs> the record label guy Bob Keen invited Valens to come to Keen's house, wow, and audition in a small recording studio in his basement. And I'm gonna go ahead and say that now that Phantom Jukebox does not advise yeah young budding talent of any kind to follow a new strange person you've just met that went hey i've got a recording studio in my basement get in the van <laughs> oh uh how, how much is it per recording session we'll talk about it in the van okay yeah so <laughs> so maybe um Maybe meet at a like neutral, you know, not their basement. I don't really know where you're you're supposed to meet for these things. Maybe like Starbucks, a, a well lit talent agency where there's other witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, maybe a Starbucks for a writing position that maybe that would work for a performing situation. That would be a lot more difficult. But uh, 
a person's basement, I believe, I'm going to go ahead and say nine out of 10 is not the place where you want to be. Because no. I think you're going to find a chair and some duct tape in a bad time. <laughs> Opposed to some chair, and some uh, duct tape, <laughs> some duct tape, a chair in a good time. In a good time. It's a, it's a weird world out there. After his first audition, Keane signed Valens uh, to Delphi on May 27th, 1958. And I'm saying Valens because I have a feeling I'm saying Valenzuela wrong. Oh, okay. I'm doing my best here. But his name is Valenzuela. But for me and my uh, backwards pronunciation abilities, it's, I'm just going to go with Valens. Okay, yeah. Um, so uh, he goes by Richie Valens uh, because there were a bunch of Richards at the time. So not that many Richies. There was a bunch of Richards at the time. Well, there's just like a whole bunch of dicks everywhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, apparently they thought so. So they changed it to Richie because it was okay. a little more unique. Keen also recommended shortening his name from Valenzuela to Valens to get over some, uh, some already some biases that were in mm. the fifties. We're talking about yeah. the fifties. So we're not talking about a very accepting time period. No. And how many people in this area were more freely willing to just walk past an album that had Valenzuela on it in the rock section? Yeah, that sucks. It really does suck. And it really does suck that he had to do it. But even with all those biases, he still became like a beloved uh, member of the rock community. Yeah. So good on it. That's just even that's just another thing that he got through. Just all that, all that BS. And then still like eight months in already like just blew people away. Mm. That's being that good. Yeah. That's being that good at what you do to, for people to go, Oh, I forgot I was racist. (laughs) 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 You know what I mean? How could I forget? Wow. It makes me think that it's bad. So Valens only released two albums in his lifetime, but his second one was a double ace, uh, was a double a side and had the song Donna written about his real girlfriend, uh, Donna Ludwig with the, uh, with La Bamba on it. Okay. So I think La Bamba was a single and then he released, uh, that later it sold over, uh, 1 million copies and was uh, awarded the gold disc by the Recording Industry Association of America. Nice. So, real, real good. Yeah. He influenced uh, the likes of Los Lobos, Los Lonely Boys, and Carlos Santana. Oh, nice. Yes. And he has become nationally successful at the time, very few Latinos in American rock and pop music. So, again, did so much in such a little amount of time. Eight months. It's the big bopper, J.P. Richardson, so uh, who is not a, a mafioso that I am aware of. Uh. Giles Perry Richardson Jr., born October 24th, 1930, was also known as the big bopper, but, uh, but also called Jape amongst his friends. That's J-A-P-E. I've never heard that nickname before. Nope. Never heard of Jape. Nope. Uh, he was a disc jockey who parlayed a uh, 
a big voice and an exuberant personality into a career as an early rock and roll star. So he did both. Huh. Uh, he was born in uh, uh, Sabine Pass, Texas, or I believe that's Sabine, S-A-B-I-N-E. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in Texas. <laughs> he studied law at Lamar College and was a member of the band and chorus. And during this time, he worked part-time at KTRM Radio. Ooh. Uh, he got married in 1952 and joined the Army in 1955. This is one busy dude. Wow. Yeah. Upon his discharge, he returned to work at KTRM Radio, where he got the nickname The Big Bopper from the uh, popularity of The Bop at the time and later became the <laughs> station's program director. Wow. So he just, he just got in there and just killed it, apparently. As that's, a disc jockey. that's pretty cool uh because you know how like you you hate the people at work that like are uh the managers and supervisors out there that have never done the lower man's job oh yeah you know yeah. what i mean all the best managers are always the ones that know what the bottom looks like yeah and yeah. and that's the thing it being getting higher in the radio business and it's like uh yeah i i i know what it takes to make good music because i've done it Right. Not to mention, too, like he knows what it takes to make great music because he's listened to thousands yeah. and thousands and actually thousands of records uh, in his his career. I mean, I think he was already kind of a musician. I guess we're going to find out he became one for sure. But I think he always had some kind of interest in it. Uh, and then just to be around so much music all the time being his life, like, this guy must have been so well educated. Not maybe, maybe as like. I don't know to what degree of like his like music theory knowledge, but his just understanding of what it takes to structurally make a good song. Yeah. He must've been phenomenal. That's an interesting uh, point too, that I would like to do some research on. It's just the difference between a uh, disc jockeying then versus now, you know, not having to, uh, you just have them like on a playlist that you just select. It's like, you just can hit play and hit, uh, go into commercial and, that are already pre-taped and all these other things. I, I, well, I didn't do it like professionally, professionally, but as like a, I did my own programming in uh, college. Like I had a radio show and I did another, another internship and another internet radio show, which I care not to mention, yeah. but um, in college, I will say it was as interesting as you wanted it to be. Mm. So I didn't really have a lot of control over like the, the daily programming, but for my hour block, I got to control whatever music I played because I brought in my own music. Oh, so it really, it came down to, yeah, you make your own playlist and stuff. And I kind of ran it off of like an iPad and all that. But, uh, I did try to bring in like as much information as I could think about, like a little, little blurbs about each song you're listening to. But in the end, I think I probably sounded like extra dorky NPR. <laughs> But, like, there's a confidence in, like, just the monotone that the NPR guys have. I, I thought you would have gone Casey Kasem all the way. Well, at the time, I didn't have the confidence. Oh. So, I mean, the NPR guys, like, I mean, they sound like this, but I don't really ever, they never really come across as, like, worried to me. They're just kind of, like, no energy. But that energy is pretty confident for the most part. <laughs> me, at my first, my college radio show was, yeah, I think we're gonna be playing this um, <laughs> song by Lacassette. <laughs> Just trying to figure out, like, because you're talking to theoretically 
tens of people on that particular AM tens wave. Tens of people. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, you, you build that confidence later on. Yeah. And just the experience behind a microphone and all the little intricacies of it. But uh, in his day, the Bopper's day, he was literally changing like over records. Yeah. Like he was physically. Fl- that's crazy. I mean, that's why literally disc jockey is because you're literally shifting disc yeah. from one turntable to the other all night. Wow. Um, yeah, all night. Like his, like his, his situation would have had to have been so much more uh, intense. Like, like, I mean, let's as laborious as that could like get, like it'd be tedious for sure. Um, but he also didn't have the internet uh, on anything. So any information he would have learned about any songs that he was listening carrier to. Carrier Pigeon. Uh, probably Carrier Pigeon, <laughs> um, just psychic transmission wave, or maybe uh, a, his, he just going out there and reading up on it somehow. Heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend that you've been missing around. Right, right. Heard it through the grapevine, as yeah. they say. Um, Fun fact about his uh, disc jockey days. In uh, May of 1957, he broke the record for continuous on-air broadcasting by eight minutes. So he went on a total of five days, two hours, and eight minutes playing 1,821 records and taking showers during five-minute newscasts. Wow. He broadcast for five days straight. Jeez. Uh, and during the marathon, he lost 35 pounds. And, and uh, KTRM uh, uh, paid Richardson $746.50 for his overtime. This is in 50s money. I'm sorry. I don't have the, uh, the, I don't have the translation to today's, but it's a decent chunk of change Yeah. Um, for his overtime and quickly hit the sack for like 20 hours. Wow. So he just like went home and passed out with all that money. <laughs> That's dedication. That is dedication. And that's just like, I want to beat this record. And apparently some other soul went through all that to be beaten by eight minutes. Oh. <laughs> and that was so bad for that guy. Aww. But how, how, if the, if the record is like five days and change, right? How right. much longer are you going to surpass it? I mean, I feel like it's like, oh, we, those we broke minutes, the record. Those minutes turn into hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, we broke the record. Okay. And three seconds. Okay. We're done. It's like, I'm not <laughs> trying to hang around for any much longer than just to get the record. Oh, yeah. No, it would have, it would have turned into, yeah. It would have felt like days. Uh, and I did a rough translation. And this is very, very rough. I just did it on the, on the, on the, on the fly here. It would have been the equivalent to about twenty two hundred bucks. Wow, well, that's I think. pretty good for for five days. And that's a rough. That could be off. That's just a quick Google search, but I think it would be about twenty two hundred bucks. Nice. Yeah, pretty nice for five days worth of work. Like a solid week's worth of work. It's not even the worth of work. It's the five days no sleep. Hmm. That yeah, that you're really getting paid for. Yeah, take tomorrow off, but come back in on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> um, around this time, he also started writing songs, like more songs. Like he may have done a few early on, but didn't really do anything with them. But now he's like, I want to give it a shot. I want to see if I can be a songwriter. Um, 
director for Mercury and Star Day Records, Harold Pappy Paley. Oh, Pappy. Pappy sounds like the guy who would invite you to the basement recording studio. Oh, yeah, that's definitely Pappy. Pappy's got a recording studio he'd like you to see. Or that's the person you already find in the basement. Pappy? Yeah, you find You Pappy. open the door and Pappy's already down there? Yeah. Like, oh, no, they got Pappy. Got Pappy. It's, don't worry, Pappy, I'm here to rescue you. <laughs> Come with me, Pappy, if you want to live. Who said Pappy wanted to be rescued? <laughs> Uh, door slams <laughs> so uh so uh pappy signed the bopper <laughs> i love just call it, let's just we're calling them by their aliases and see how confusing this can get uh he became a songwriter and wrote songs for artists like george jones like country royalty pretty much as soon as he got started wow uh, the bopper wrote the song White Lightning, which I'm familiar with and is a huge George Jones song. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like a, with with Pappy and the bopper, it sounds like, you know, when uh, they uh, have interrogations <laughs> and they're using the street names of the people <laughs> the, included. The Tom Segura thing. Yeah. How long have you known Pappy? Man, I ain't no, I don't know no Pappy. No. Does he know the bopper? Or like you just walk in like you're like the new intern. It's like, all right, Bopper, go tell Pappy to go get Scratchy and Mittens to go down to the store and Daddy will make you a sandwich. <laughs> Is this a new language? <laughs> what happened? But anyway, White Lightning's a huge George Jones song. Oh, yeah. And it was a, a number one country hit in 1959. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, 70, number 73 on the pop charts. So that's not country charts. That's 73 on the pop charts. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's huge. A little crossover, getting some, getting some play time on some other new ears. Yeah. That's what I like. Uh, in 1957, Richardson's first single he wrote for himself uh, was Beggar to a King, which um, uh, George Jones would cover later on. Oh. But this was a song he wrote, uh, the bopper wrote for himself. And that song, I've heard it, and I was like, there's a reason this song didn't blow up like it wasn't like i mean it did some you know and it got there but it wasn't like a, a huge chart top or anything it's just like a, a not not a bad start i guess you would say but, yeah but nothing like spectacular but uh in the summer of 1958 he wrote and uh recorded uh chantilly lance as the big bopper for pappy daly's d lip <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're going to go ahead and put that on Pappy's D label. We're going to put that on Pappy's D label. Uh, Mercury bought the recording and released it during the summer of 1958, and it reached 16 on the pop charts and spent 22 weeks on the national top 40. Nice. A much better takeoff than yeah. uh, Beggar to a King. Uh, with the success of Chantilly Lance, Richardson took some time off of KTRM radio because he was still working at the radio station. And then uh, he, with the success of that, he's like, maybe let's go give this rock star thing a try and uh, join Buddy Holly and uh, Buddy Holly on his upcoming tour. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to Buddy Holly, probably the biggest name on. Yeah. Because yeah. Valens and um, the Bopper were like new, but they were, their names were growing and they would have probably gotten to Buddy Holly's point. 
but Buddy Holly was just the the supernova, yeah, happening uh, around them at the time in that circuit. Like he was the the immediate rising star. Uh, his name was Charles Harden Holly, born September seventh, nineteen thirty six. Uh, he was born in Lubbock, Texas, uh, and the uh, in the early nineteen fifties he opened for Bill Haley and his Comets, and then also Elvis. Bill Haley and the Comets, if you're not familiar, is a the group that wrote the song "Rock Around the Clock." Okay, uh, which is a huge rock and roll like early rock and roll song. Like if you're yeah. into that genre, you know what that song is. And then later on, he would open up for Elvis. Wow, that's big. That is huge. Yeah, uh, in in like in the beginnings of his career, like he he's one of those people that came out like Valens. There was just immediate raw talent there, and they're like, okay, you're gonna like immediately open up for like two of the biggest up and coming rock musicians that there are Bale Haley and Elvis. Yeah. Uh, 1957 through 58, he toured internationally in a band called the crickets. Huh. So it's buddy Holly and the crickets, uh, which is important because it in, inspired by Holly's insect themed, uh, themed crickets. Um, the, uh, they chose their name, the Beatles. Uh, because they saw Holly perform and thought it was a cool idea. Really? Yes. Wow. So uh, Lennon and McCartney were in the audience watching Bill, uh, Buddy Holly play, and they're like, Damn, the crickets are taken. <laughs> what should we do, John? <laughs> I like Beatles. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the crickets would go, uh, would get a billboard number one with that'll be the day, which is, wow. a, which is a fantastic, that's like a great title. I love the title of that. Uh, by 1959, he had a net worth of $1 million in modern money. Nice. So that's net worth. I wanted to be clear that he wasn't like super rich or anything at yeah. this point. He probably, if he was able to continue on his career, and by the way, he was 22 in 1959 when the plane crash happens okay um so it's insane for him to have that net worth but that's a net worth that's like what his brand would be worth at this time yeah so that's not how much he has in the bank that's right yeah that's how basically that's how much other people can make off of buddy holly right now if that Mm. makes sense yeah if you boil him down to just kind of being a, a brand name um uh and uh there's actually a one of my favorite musicians of all time was a bass player for him which we're going to talk about in like two seconds but um he in an interview was saying that buddy holly went on this tour specifically because he was broke wow like they needed money so they went on this insanity tour that they're about that they embarked on it had so many dates and they had no coordination on it but we'll talk about that in a minute so I want to stress though, he was like a huge, he was an up and coming star and stuff, but he hadn't gotten the money yet. The money would have come probably later. Yeah. In my, and uh, to my knowledge, fun fact about like Nirvana, for example, like Nirvana had like the biggest selling album like, of that decade or like that year at the very least. And uh, Kurt Cobain was like living out of his car while the record was selling that high. He just hadn't gotten paid yet. Wow. Like he was dead broke 
while that album was killing it in the first few weeks, but he hadn't gotten the money from it yet. Like he didn't even know. Wow. That's insane. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in early 1959, he assembled a new band. So the, he, the, the crickets, I think they had like disputes. So uh, he kind of just became Buddy Holly. Okay. Um, and he assembled a new band and embarked on a tour of the Midwestern U.S. Um, uh, basically, the new band that he would go on tour with uh, was a famed session musician, Tommy Alsop, uh, which is one of those getting like a really good session guy to go with you aside from like the money thing. Yeah. I think is also a really cool note of how good buddy Holly was to like, and like his popularity at the time to have like session musicians interested in going. Yeah. I mean, cause I'm like, let's say, I mean, something happened to me where I couldn't play bass for other world. I mean, sure, we could put out the call to like Steve DiGiorgio of Testament, who's like a session <laughs> bass player now. But Steve would probably be like, no, who the hell are you guys? Yeah. <laughs> but so, but, but to have somebody of that level interested in playing for him, I think it's really, really cool. Um, Carl Bunch was a drummer that he found. Of all the people to play bass for him, who do you think it was? It's, I know it's like impossible to think, but just real quick off the top of your head, super famous. I'm not even going to say country musician. Who do you think it is? Um, Lightning round. I'd probably think like a blues guy. And you just shoot, shoot shot. Who do you think? Super famous, legendary country musician. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings is the bass player for Buddy Holly. Do you know who Waylon Jennings is? No. no. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. You don't really like country that much. No. <laughs> uh, Waylon Jennings is the guy who sang the Dukes of Hazard theme song. Oh, wow. And is just like one of like the premier like outlaw, uh, like true badass, like George Strait and his troubadour or uh nonsense yeah. Waylon Jennings was the actual guy wow okay he was actually cool he was the dude that like uh uh I almost said Jack Black Johnny Cash would like do drugs and eat cake with and go hide in the bushes with damn yeah <laughs> like, Waylon Jennings was awesome last troubadour George Strait um so in 1959, he assembled this new band of just like ace musicians to go on this crazy tour uh, throughout the Midwestern U.S. So before we get to talking about um, the tour, um, just a quick talking point for you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to spare you the bad stinger. I know you were looking at the board waiting for me to play it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, I need you to make me one. Okay. Yeah. By the way, uh, but a talking point for you. Do you have a bad tour or road trip experience that you can share? Maybe not necessarily a full-on tour, but let's say it's a show a long way, it's got hours away. You need a hotel the next night, or you're going to be on the road for like six hours or something like that. Do you have like a, a crazy story, like a, a kind of a short one? Um, 
Not other than with Otherworld. I haven't really gone that far out for any other bands. Uh, than just like uh, for Otherworld, literally having uh, showing up there over in Jacksonville, which is like three hours from us. And uh, Brandon, our drummer, uh, got like food poisoning and like, is there to play. And then immediately after playing, like and getting his drums off stage, he'd, he'd had to go back to like the Airbnb that I think we were uh, renting for the time being. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But and just immediately had to go back and like, I was- think went back and started throwing up and stuff like that. And it was just bad. Yeah. Brandon is a trooper for that. You know, actually, that I remember that show. Yeah. And that was the one where uh, uh, we found out just how much you enjoy breakfast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were coming back and wanted to stop at uh, uh, some place. I think it was like 10 in the morning. Yeah. It was at Kiki's at like 10 in the morning. And you might as well like uh, try uh, to, I don't know, visit the queen. Visit the, yeah. It was just, you just won't get a seat. Yeah. But so we get over there and uh, I'm like, I mean, I'm I'm fine with waiting unless we can find another breakfast place. And Connor's like, but there's a burger place right across the street. I'm like, but it's it's 10 in the morning. I want some breakfast. I want some breakfast. And uh, he was like, you know, man, man, fuck breakfast. I was like, no, no, Connor. You don't fuck breakfast. Breakfast fucks you. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember like because because you're a pretty lighthearted guy. Like <laughs> the, the, we'd known each other for a little while. This is like our first big show together, I think. Yeah. And uh, you just like, I had never seen you get mad at anything yet. And then like, you just kind of like, yeah, yeah screw breakfast. And you're like, no, screw you. <laughs> <laughs> We're all like, Jesus Christ, get this guy an eggs over Miami but, now. <laughs> but then we found out that the uh, burger place had a burger with like a sunny side egg, up egg on it. And well, I was like, yeah, that counts. I'm not going to wrap this burger, burger place because maybe we can get a sponsorship, you know. But, but they're uh, they're pretty good. Hey, insert burger place here had a morning, uh, you know, breakfast burger that, that was that was enough. That was dope. And I was like, let's meet it halfway. Yeah, hash browns and <laughs> eggs and bacon on a burger. How about that? Even had maple syrup. Oh, so good. Love that place. But uh, um, that was a fun show. But um. Yeah, that's one of the reasons uh, we ask you to support your local musicians or craftspeople or shop owners, but uh, a little more specifically on like the local musicians and stuff, because what it takes to get to some of these shows, especially as yeah. like a uh, a band that has to travel, it's a lot. It's a lot. Like we had to get an Airbnb. We took an, that was a negative. Like we didn't make money from that show because yeah. we had to get the Airbnb, but it was worth it because it was fun. But um not even just for us, but for like any, any local band you go see, like look into buying a shirt. They'd appreciate it. Yeah. Not definitely. even just from us, but from any, anywhere you go, they, they would, they're of probably the, the people that will appreciate that more than, you know. Yeah. And you get a cool shirt out of it. From the local band standpoint, it's like you're, you're not making money until you're making a lot of money. Oh yeah. The overhead. There's not really a, uh, in between. Yeah. No, no, you're, that's exactly right. Like you either you're an imper- you're an intern until you're a professional. Yes, and it just kind of happens. Yeah, no, there is a there is a a barrier certainly to have to get past to start making money in this world. Oh, the algorithms of music. Oh my god. Which, by the way, if you leave us five stars for the show, 
Um, that's easier than buying a shirt, and we'd we'd love you for it. We are <laughs> of those people that would be really thankful for a five star review and just let us know what you think. We're on TikTok and Instagram on both Phantom Jukebox and Other World. So now we begin the tour from hell. <laughs> yes, and we're gonna explain uh, why they got a plane in the first place. Oh. That was something I was wondering about. They got a plane, rented a plane. Oh. Um, so the bands were on the winter dance party tour, otherwise known as the tour from hell, as they called it. It was slated for 24 concerts in the Midwest over a three week period. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Including travel. That's not like in some cases, like a concert a night. That's it's several a day. Yeah. That's a lot of playing because they're playing sets. Um, and it started in the dead of the Midwest winter, January 23rd, 1959 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Winter in Wisconsin. Jeez. So Buddy Holly was headlining and, uh, uh, Valens, the big bopper were on the bill and there's a guy named, uh, Dion, uh, and we'll, we'll hear about him later who was, he rode the bus like the whole time. So the reason yeah. the three we're talking about are important because they're the ones who got on the plane okay. and the rest of like the traveling show was on the bus. Like they were going to like ride up. So uh, Buddy Holly historian Bill Griggs said they traveled in reconditioned school buses no longer fit for children. Oh. Yeah. So that's, cheap. That's cheaply. something what we would do. That is, yes. Yeah. Uh, there was no AC or heat in the Milwaukee winter oh Uh, they were driving through wisconsin iowa and minnesota in winter and um i am from florida so i don't understand uh i don't know exactly how cold it can get but from some of the the some of the numbers that were thrown out were negative seven which is uh minus 14 celsius and lower yeah that's uh that's a that's a little chilly so griggs believed five this is the historian griggs believed up to five different buses were used in the first two weeks of the tour due to different technical issues. Wow. That's five different buses failing over the first two weeks because it's so cold and the buses were just not robust enough. Jeez. So according to Buddy Holly guitarist Tommy Alsop, uh, one of the buses froze and stalled while going uphill just kind of showing how cheap the buses are, but also how brutal this winter we're talking is. This is a particularly rough winter where they are. Uh, Some of the things they had to resort to was the band. And there's like, there's the bopper on this bus. There's Valens on this bus. There's Dion and uh, his band on the bus. This is a full bus of people. Wow. Um, And they're having to like, uh, they burn newspapers in the bus aisle to keep warm at one point. Like they are, there's no heating yeah. anywhere. It's that and cuddling. And that's basically all we got. That's all they got. Uh, Holly's drummer, Carl Bunch, got frostbite wow. on his feet. And he had to mix, uh, miss the next show, which would be the fatal, like, you know, the, the show that the uh, band didn't, the bands didn't make it to. Wow. Or uh, Holly Valens and the bopper didn't make it to. Like he, the, he had to get, uh, Bunch had to get medical attention so he couldn't play. Wow, that 
Yeah, I've never uh, had anyone get frostbite uh, while traveling to a gig. Yeah, uh, I mean, most of my shows have been, well, all of my shows have been in Florida, so frostbite hasn't really ever been a problem. Yeah, we don't even think of that as a, a possibility. Heat stroke, uh, you know, those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. It's, it's a different kind of different kind of problem. So another talking point for you. Okay. Okay. Again, I'm abstaining from using my horrible, my, my horrible sound. I mean, you know, I, don't tempt me. I will. I will. Press I, d- I did it for you. Okay. That, that was the. I want to pray. I want to press it so bad. <laughs> so bad. Anyway, so a talking point for you. Uh, what is something small that can improve the morale on an otherwise just nasty tour? Like, what do you think? Imagine you're on like a long tour. Um, you've been in a cramped space with people that are your friends, but you're really tired of looking at them. Um, what's something that you think you could do that would just improve morale for everybody? And you've been on the road for like a solid week. What do you think you would, what you could um, do to just help cheer everybody up? Just, a, oh, just what a, I could do you specifically, like just, just, a, you could do for everybody that just would just tell about a little bit, a little thing. Um, what I would do, cause immediately I thought like what helps morale is like, when you just have a really good crowd, like having that show that's just like, that was, you know, they, they, that crowd was awesome. I really like playing there. But as far as what I can do, uh, specifically just, for your band, like this isn't for the audience. This is for the band. Let's go to Denny's. <laughs> Money is a problem too. Oh, uh, yeah. It was just a hot meal, you know, especially with that cold. That's not bad. That's not bad, and I would very much appreciate you for it, especially like if you like bought food. But, um, what, um, and this is kind of like a minor thing, but it, it is something that, uh, when I read it, I was like, yeah, yeah, that would improve, that would improve the mood greatly. Um, is that, uh, at this point, they had been on the road for over a week and they had played several shows, right? Yeah. Um, both the morale and the laundry were in poor condition. Oh. So uh, while traveling from Clear Lake, Iowa to Moorhead, Minnesota, um, like that, that was their route, um, Holly suggested that they charter a plane that he could take the laundry and fly ahead of time. And like he would beat them to the place, but it would give him a couple hours to wash all the clothes and then like for him being like, you know, the guy, like the headliner, like people, like people are there to see the other acts, but it's buddy Holly's show essentially. Yeah. Um, that he could like get a couple hours sleep in like a, like a, a hotel room or something, or maybe even just at the laundromat and just not be on this God forsaken bus. Wow. Yeah. Right. So, um, they were saying, like I said, they were traveling from Clear Lake, Iowa to Moorhead, Minnesota, which is roughly 370 miles. Um, which I, I tried to get like straight answers on this, but it's really kind of tough to get a, just a, some people would say this one thing, something was, some things would say another. I was trying to also remember that we're talking the fifties technology here. Um, so we're not also talking about like a 747. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about a 50s plane. 
Um, so what would translate to be like a six to, I think it went up to 12 hour drive. I'm going to, let's call it 10. I'm going to say maybe a 10 hour bus ride Yeah, for the band would have estimated to being something in the ballpark of a two hour flight. Wow. Maybe more probably, but it wasn't going to be 10 hours. Right. Yeah. So, um, this is also guesstimated on my part, just trying to like, I just punched in some numbers based on, uh, they flew in a, uh, Beechcraft Bonanza was the name of the plane. The model of the plane. Oh, more on that later. Um, and this is just based on the plane stats that, uh, they would take roughly two to three hours at like a hundred and I think 60 miles an hour, which is a cruising speed Yeah, in a plane. And I, I don't know that much about uh, flight paths and stuff. This is, this is all very roughly estimated, but essentially less than half the time to get there. So like a solid, you know, five hour sleep along with getting the laundry done. Wow. You yeah. Know, it would be worth it for him to do it. Uh, and he's at like, he's just at the breaking point of being on this bus. Right. And so Holly charted the plane and took the ba- all of the band's laundry with them to get it cleaned. Uh, Richie, Richie Valley wasn't originally supposed to be on the plane in the, like in the first place. So the plane costs $108 to rent. Um, and he had two more seats that he could take with him. Oh, wow. Along with the laundry. Right. So adjusted for inflation, 108 bucks in 1959 is equal to about $1,042 to, for this, like, this is like a late night flight over. Um, Holly originally offered it to the band's opener, Dion DiMucci and, uh, of Dion and the Belmonts for 36 bucks, which is roughly 350 bucks in today's Wow. Life. So he basically is like, hey, you can come on this plane for a third of the price, right? Yeah. You know, pay your way to get on a plane. I'll handle the booking of it or I'll put up the money if you want to get on. Uh, Dion uh, wound up passing due to just 350 bucks wasn't an expense he could justify, right? Because yeah. they, they don't have money on this trip. Like they're all, this was an expense for Buddy Holly too, but he was just able to do it uh at least at this point maybe yeah being you know the main uh you know the main draw on the bill holly then offered the seats to his bandmates uh tommy Alsup and then bassist waylon jennings jennings offered his seat to the bopper because the bopper had a nasty flu that was getting worse oh wow so the bopper was in bad shape on the bus and then waylon jennings being just one of the coolest people he's like in his mind it's like a really nice thing to do it is yeah it's like you go you get sleep try to get better i'll stay on the bus for another 10 hours jeez right uh because this would have been an awesome like hey you just want to get on a plane and just avoid this and like get coffee and watch like the laundry get done sounds like a really nice break um uh, Valens asked Alsip for his uh Valens would ask Alsip for his seat due to Valens having a cold as well. Not the flu, but he was he didn't feel well. And Alsip didn't really want to give his seat up, but he decided to leave it up to a coin toss and Valens won the coin toss. Oh wow. I believe it was like heads. So 
now it's Holly Valens and the Bopper on the plane. And wow. it could have been Holly Alsop and Waylon Jennings. It could have been just uh, it could have been just Buddy Holly's band. And we would have lost Waylon Jennings too. Yeah. Or Waylon Jennings instead, rather. So according to Jennings memoir, um, Wayland and autobiography, he had he and Holly joked because they were buddies. Uh, he and Holly joked about the uh, change in travel arrangements. Holly told him, uh, I hope your damned bus freezes up again. You know, just riffing back and forth. And Jennings said, well, I hope your old plane crashes. Wow. And this caused uh, this haunted Jennings for years because it was a joke. Yeah. You know, like you, you with your buddies, you have sometimes you develop a real morbid sense of humor, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's you just like, even like a. Uh, sometimes I'll greet my brother like sup asshole, yeah. you know, like, but it, you don't mean it. It's just, a, it's a joke. Um, and this was just between two friends, you know, and people who have been through a lot together at this point, uh, just saying, just exchanging, just kind of like a little, like, kind of just a, a, you know, just a joke passing by and to have it come true, yeah. um, plagued Waylon Jennings. I remember him talking, like, I don't. I mean, watched, I don't remember him specifically, but I watched uh, completely unrelated to this episode. Uh, I watched him talk about, um, I knew he was the bass player for Buddy Holly. Yeah. He talked about it in an interview. And in a CMT interview he did years later, Jennings would say, God almighty, for years, I thought I caused it. Like it, wow. it really, it really messed him up. I, I, it would mess me up. Somebody you really care about and something yeah. so horrible happened to them. And calling it out first. Yeah. Just mm, Yeah, I, that's bad. Yeah. So now we're gonna get into the 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 fateful day. So now the they've uh the show at the surf ballroom had been packed. Uh pretty good for a Monday, you know, packed for a Monday night. This is how big these guys are. Uh and after the concert, so he Holly's already chartered the plane. After this concert, Holly Richardson and Valens made their way to the Mason City Airport at uh, twelve thirty a.m. for departure. Uh, Roger Pat uh, Roger Peterson had volunteered to fly the group. He was a twenty-one year old pilot with four years of flying experience. I think with some seven hundred hours logged, which is, I believe, pretty good. I'm not familiar with like flight logs. I think that's pretty good. Seven, yeah. Seven just being able to fly a plane, I'd say it's pretty good. But let's say you're trusting your life with this person to fly. Yeah. And they yeah. came up to you and said 700 hours. I think that's good. In four years and like doing it professionally. 700 hours. I, I have no idea. I kind of personally. How want, many hours are in a year? A lot. I kind of personally want an old grizzled man with like aviators and like a bald spot to be my, my, my pilot, <laughs> like, like really, really aggressive mustache, but like bald spot just dead behind the eyes. But you know what he can do? Land that plane. <laughs> That's what I want. He may still think he's a nom, but he's going <laughs> to land that plane. That plane's going to land his dreams and nightmares may carry on. But my carry-on will be in the Uber I'm taking <laughs> to the hotel because I would have lived. 
<laughs> so if I saw a 21 year old pilot go, hi guys, I'm going to be your pilot today. I'm like, no, get your dad. He can be my pilot. <laughs> he's never flown before. I don't care. I don't care. I don't, he has more experience in the world. He knows what he's doing. If that plane starts to misbehave, he'll full name that plane and it'll write itself. <laughs> Yeah, no. So, no, like a 21-year-old pilot, I better not see it. I don't know if I'd be comfortable. If his grades didn't go down, the plane won't either. <laughs> that plane starts to misbehave, you'll hear leather clearing belt loops. <laughs> We're going to land this thing. Um, so, unfortunately, uh, uh, Peterson was the pilot, was unaware of a weather advisory that had been issued before he took off with his passengers. You see, an old man yeah. pilot would have been reading the newspaper when you asked him. He would have been reading that section. He would have just lightly folded the newspaper down to look at you and go, this plane ain't taking off tonight. And he would have full slowly rolled the newspaper up where you're out of view. <laughs> and that's just the end of the conversation. Get back on the bus 10 hours to, to Moorhead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What they it, needed. It doesn't look like that's going to happen tonight. <laughs> Looks like you're going to get a hotel. You might want to catch that bus before it leaves. <laughs> Are you riding the bus or is the bus riding you? <laughs> no damn sure it's not a Lincoln. <laughs> so, yeah, an old uh, an old dad pilot would have known that there's weather. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know what he would have said? Felt it in my knees. <laughs> Almost got a spit take. Yeah, yeah. Taking a sip of my tea. My knees hurt. We're not taking this plane off. <laughs> this plane's staying on the ground like my ass is in this chair. <laughs> now shut up. Wheel of Fortune's on. <laughs> I don't even know if Wheel of Fortune was out in the 59. But, um, so anyway, he wasn't, Peterson was not aware of a, this is a blizzard he's about to take off in. I would think you see a blizzard. Yeah, that's uh, out of all of the um, the things that can things happen. to happen in the sky. I would say a blizzard, one of the more visible things that you can <laughs> you can notice at least. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they're, it's they're just in the plane, and he just looks up. Whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> it done jumped out from in front of me. Oh, it wasn't a mirage. Oh no. Where did the sun go, guys? I thought I was hallucinating. Whoa. And still thought to drive the plane. <laughs> yeah. Those are more than just clouds. So Angry clouds have texture now. <laughs> angry clouds. <laughs> Bob Ross would have called them angry clouds. <laughs> this doesn't look like anything Bob Ross would have painted. He's too nice. No, they don't. They, that goes. It's just as another dad pilotism. If it don't look like something Bob Ross would have painted, I'm not taking this plane <laughs> out. You know, if I was a pilot, that'd be my like motto. Just look outside and go like, are those happy clouds? <laughs> those aren't happy clouds. So, uh, I can't picture a cozy little cabin there in front of the lake. <laughs> so, oh, how happy those. Those clouds don't look too happy. Remember that aspiring pilots. Just, just remember what would Bob Ross do? <laughs> Probably stay inside. So unfortunately, um, only a short 
a short while after the flight began, the plane ran into some trouble and crashed. So it, it, I think it was only in the air for like a couple minutes. Wow. According to the reports. Uh, Jerry Dwyer, uh, the owner of the air service company, went out looking for the plane after it failed to show up in Fargo. Uh, he made a gruesome discovery only a few miles away from the airport that they took off. The bodies of Holly Richardson and Valens had been thrown from the plane in the crash. Wow. And Peterson's remains were wrapped up inside the cockpit. Jeez. So, like, the, yeah, they ejected the, the musicians and then the pilot was just, just rolled into the plane. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, we're not going to get into, like, the gruesome parts of this. I didn't really want to do that for episode one. Yeah. Of season two. And not to mention it's kind of beside the point. We just, it's a plane crash. Bad things happened. Yeah. Um, so that's about as it's about as detailed as we're going to get into this, other than a couple descriptions about. I don't think there was really any myths about like them surviving or anything. There's so. a little bit actually. There's a little bit about how it might have happened or played out. Okay, but we, and not so much that we need to go with like into a. We're uh, not. Yeah, we're not going to get into like a. We're it's not, not a, a crime. No podcast. Not, no no type episode. No, we're not going to be reading the reports. No, I'm sorry if some some really in murder people are real bummed out about this but this isn't a murder anyway so i'm sorry 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 you can take your bibs off <laughs> anyway uh the autopsy reports um are rough and we're not going to go into them in any real detail um it was <laughs> It was later found out that uh, although Peterson had sufficient flying hours and passed this written test, uh, he may not have had the right time understanding, like no, like low visibility or no, like basically when you have to rely on just the instruments, he may not Mm -hmm. have technically had enough time behind the wheel for that. Oh, yeah. For that it, kind of storm. Because as we're going to learn, like a, like low visibility or no visibility, like because yeah. we're going to learn there's like flying using the horizon. And then there's when you fly at night, you just sometimes, you know, when there's no city or anything, you can't see the horizon. So it's all instrument. Wow. How you yeah. keep that plane in the air. And it's not, I don't think back then it was digital instruments either. No, I mean, they had stuff. I mean, obviously they had stuff that worked, but like yeah. you, you needed to know how it worked and you needed to be pretty good. Like they said, um, uh, pilots that like more experienced pilots would have no problem. Mm. Like they might have like had some difficulty dealing with the storm, but what we got is uh, somebody who's like a greenhorn um, who shouldn't have taken this job. Yeah. They, whoever assigned this person should not have signed this person onto it. Oh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is a failure and managerial because uh, this pilot worked for a company that, was it like a taxi basically? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the investigations of the said crash, um, the said crash, uh, the original investigation blamed the accident on pilot error and poor weather conditions. Um, but with time, it has been thought basically this has been brought into question. Like, was it really pilot error? Uh, aviation, aviation expert um, L.J. Kuhn requested that it be reopened in 2015, like the case be reopened. Uh, and, uh, quote, Roger would have flown uh, out and about this airport at night under multiple different conditions. Like the, he was a pilot from this area is basically what, is basically yeah. what um, 
uh, LJ Kuhn is saying. Huh. So he's saying like he would have been able to probably handle this. Like he's like he's he's not immediately going to he's an inexperienced pilot. Like that's not the let's not go with the easiest answer yet. Okay. Right? Yeah. Maybe let's dig into this more. However, the National Transportation Safety Board declined the request, stating that the evidence presented in the request wasn't sufficient to reopen this case. In their minds, like it, I think the, the term is Occam's razor, where it's like the simplest explanation is likely the truth. Mm, okay. Or is like closer to the truth in any yeah. case. So you've got bad weather conditions and an inexperienced pilot, A plus B, you know. Yeah. Um, later there was a rumor that foul play was involved because, um, there was a gun found at the site that was on the plane. It would have had to have been in the plane. Right. So in 2007, an autopsy, uh, was conducted by Giles Perry Richardson, the big bop, um, on the big bopper, uh, 48 years after the plane crashed. And, uh, this was done at the request of the boppers son. He wanted some answers regarding his father's death, one of them being whether or not the bopper survived the impact. So maybe so like he was wondering if he initially survived the impact and somehow I think got shot was the was the theory. Huh. Uh like there was some kind of like it was like some kind of was it possible that he was murdered, basically. Wow. Right? It's just it's a lot. Yeah, that's a big accusation. Yeah. So since his body was found further than the others, there was some there's some who believe that he was able to walk away from the crash before eventually dying. Um, like earlier, I guess the gun was found in the site. So maybe they're wondering like, Oh, maybe he was shot. But uh, Dr. Bill Bass, a renowned forensic anthropologist conducted the autopsy. Um, the big bobber's body was found in considering, you know, being in the ground for 48 years in good enough condition to verify a couple of things. Um, the results confirm that the fractures the coroner reported in the investigation um, and were pr- like basically that all lined up like what the coroner said was true. They looked at his legs like throughout his body. Um, there were no signs of any bullet wound, but um, what they found was just a broken body. Like no, no real details yeah. here, but cause of death plane crash cause of death plane crash pretty much plain and simple like they're saying at the very least there was no walking and the other thing was that this guy died on impact like this improper landing (sighs) yes that's not how you should land no this guy hit the ground hard and like they just there was just instantly and with any luck in this particular situation none of them felt it yeah i pray to god they didn't yeah that especially from that high, I don't think it's possible. No, um, it just yeah, there was just no um, quote from the uh, from Doctor uh, Bass. Uh, there was no indication of foul play. The fractures were from head to toe, massive fractures. He died immediately, and he didn't crawl away. He didn't walk away from the plane. Like there was just there just was not going to happen. Yeah. So. Needless to say, the other members kind of reflected similar and maybe slightly worse states of where. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the aftermath of the crash. 
This news shocked the music world. It was originally known as Rock's Greatest Tragedy. Uh, newspapers across the nation ran headlines reporting, Iowa Air Crash Kills Three Singers. Um, Buddy Holly left behind a pregnant wife who tragically miscarried after hearing about the news. Oh, wow. Um, uh, yeah. In 1987, uh, she helped enact the Buddy Holly Bill to prevent families of dead celebrities from being exploited. Um, according to Texas Monthly, uh, in 2019, she told the Mirror that she thinks Holly, that she thinks of Holly every day. Uh, uh, Richard, like I think I believe actually that Buddy Holly's wife was supposed to go with him on the tour, but like she was because she was pregnant, she was. Oh like, yeah. Um, I guess she was like like you know, morning sickness and stuff like that. So I think she was eventually just told to stay home. Yeah. So like she was very very lucky. <laughs> well, you know considering what we know now i don't know if very lucky is the word but yeah could have ended differently i guess is the best way we can say it yeah it certainly wasn't lucky to take that back um the big bopper's wife was also pregnant at the time and later gave birth to their son jay perry who would later uh have his father's body exhumed and you know. okay yeah and then uh, Richie Valens was only 17. I believe the big bopper was uh, in his early 20s. And he was, he was the oldest, but he was still in his 20s. Mm. They were all very young men. Uh, the first tribute song, the three, st- uh, sorry, three stars, was for the late performers that came out shortly after the accident. The ballad remembers Valens as one, as, uh, one just starting to realize your dreams. Uh, how Holly's music could make the coldest heart melt and references the Big Bobber's most famous phrase, uh, phrase, you know what I like, from uh, uh, the Chantilly Lance. Like, that's such a weird name. But from, like, his big, his yeah. big song. Yeah. Um, Holly himself had a big hit ha- after death called It Doesn't Matter Anymore, uh, and it was released a month after his passing that I believe did pretty well. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, he also is a subject of several books and films, most notably the 1978 movie, The Buddy Holly Story. Uh, Valens is immortalized through the 1987, uh, 1987 film La Bamba. And uh, the Big Bopper's music preserved uh, music is preserved and being featured on countless soundtracks. Actually, his son, big, um, who would be known as Big Bopper Jr., uh, would perform like, kind of like his dad's songs. Uh, and maybe some like of his own originals until his own death in 2013. Oh, wow. Yeah. So kind of like, that's care. pretty cool. That yeah. is cool. Sometimes I think that's like, I was like, eh, it's kind of cheesy, but in this case, I think it, it's pretty cool. I liked it on the, uh, 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 Taylor Hawkins, uh, when his son came out and, uh, played that with is Fighters. Different. That was, that was cool. That is different. Yeah. That is, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. So this is kind of like the wrap up of, uh, this and i wanted to kind of touch on the plane a little bit and a little bit more information on the pilot and then kind of get your thoughts on it okay um one theory and this and we're getting into the speculative speculative territory here so from here on out it's not really there's going to be some facts about the plane but stuff about the pilot especially is all speculation right now speculatory territory right Okay, it kind of fit right there. No, it didn't, but I wanted to do it anyway. It's just, it's so bad. I, I want, I need you to make a new one. Yeah. Um, one theory is that the pilot, Roger Peterson, uh, wasn't as familiar with the Beechcraft Bonanza's instruments. 
uh, which he would have been relying on wholeheartedly in that blizzard. Oh. Um, the This is, again, a theory, but one of the things I read that if the Beechcraft gyroscope functions the opposite way most gyroscopes are supposed to work. So I wonder if it's like an inverted, if they mean inverted. Oh. Kind of like up is down, down, like, you know what I mean? Like how some people, like if they have like, I don't know how to describe it really because I haven't really seen a gyroscope much yeah, to speak of. Yeah. But So the gyroscope tells you how the plane is oriented from the ground, essentially. Kind of like, it's kind of like a, having a little indicator of where the horizon is. Yeah. You know, because you don't, you, you have to be flat to land the plane. Like it has to be parallel to the ground. Yeah. Essentially. So one of the ideas is that uh, he didn't know exactly where the, like he basically when he thought he was ascending, he might've actually been descending because they say he must've hit the ground at something close to 170 miles an hour. Wow. It was like a full speed bam into the ground. Jeez. So they think like maybe like he thought he was doing one thing and he was actually doing the opposite. So maybe he was actually descending. Um, because things were like inverted on the gyroscope. Oh man. Yeah. Which sounds ridiculous, but we're not in that situation, you know? So I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Especially it's like, uh, if you're not prepared to not expecting to have to use that, uh, tool, you know, not knowing that, oh crap, I can't see. And then like the kind of mild panic of like, okay, I gotta use these instruments. And I wasn't expecting to. Right. Um, also, um, one, so a little bit more information about the, uh, the 1947 V-tailed Beechcraft 35 Bonanza, which is exactly the plane they were on. Okay. Um, it was a, just kind of burning through this really quick. This, yeah. Again, this is speculation zone, but... It was a very popular, fast, single-engine propeller plane that sat usually six people, and they had the nickname, what do you think a very fast, popular, small plane that, uh, let's say, uh, aviation hobbyist could get their hands on? What do you think it was called? Maybe, uh, maybe having a negative spin. The, uh. I don't know. At first, it was like the hawk or like after like a fast bird. That would be a cool name, but maybe like a not so favorable nickname. Not so favorable. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Like Led Zeppelin. Like, Not bad. Not bad. They were called doctor killers. What? (laughs) Because the people that could afford them were doctors. Were usually like doctors. Well off. Yeah. And, um, the V-tail design gained the reputation as the fork-tail doctor killer because it had a V, uh, the, the back, the, instead of being a traditional, just like a back fin, it had two back fins. Okay. Which was the V design. It looked dope. It looks really, really cool. But um, due to the crashes of overconfident, wealthy amateur pilots. Oh. So basically, the, uh, the, one of the reports or like one of the things about this plane would be that the plane would get out from under you and it would, you, it would do things faster than you could react to fix it. Oh. And it would usually end in the plane going to the ground. Wow. That's crazy. 
the pilots were said to sometime, and this is not directly like this isn't a this isn't even a report about the uh, this came out this would come out in like the seventies right after like reviews of this plane and like consistent failures this plane had a lot of problems yeah like, there's a lot of like controversy around this particular model of plane uh, especially the V tail thing um the pilots were said to have remember this isn't specifically about our our crash yeah. this is just in an article about the plane okay in general the pilots were said to sometimes fallen uh, have fallen victim to a condition known as spiral divergence flying without a good visual reference the pilot would unknowingly get the plane into a downward spiral without realizing this uh, without realizing this uh, he would exceed the aircraft's structural redline speed. Then for some reason, perhaps realizing the problem, the pilot would attempt to pull the nose of the plane up. But because of the, ex- uh, the excessive speed, the force on the tail would be too great and the tail would fail. Wow. Basically, they would get out from under you. They would be starting to do kind of like a downward spiral situation. Like they would not notice it for one reason or another. I don't know necessarily what they mean by spiral. Um, I don't, I don't think mean corkscrew. I mean, like maybe, I, I don't know, maybe just heading towards the ground at an incredible speed. Um, and basically what would happen is they would try to like correct it and the plane would literally break under the pressure that it was under. Yeah. It's like, a I don't know, like, a you know, folding itself in half because the materials of the plane or the parts of the plane, namely the tail, that V design couldn't handle that kind of force. And it would break, and then it would crash. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. A lot of controversy behind the Beechcraft planes and the quality of said planes that would emerge in the 70s, uh, but were likely an issue during Holly's flight. Okay. So So it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, having a car that has issues, and then, like, years later, it's like, oh, it definitely had issues. So it's kind of like... uh, you know, they went on this uh, flight that at the time there was a blizzard. Mm-hmm. They had a a fairly newish uh, pilot. You know, not not right out of the school, but you know, four years in, flying it's still plane, pretty new. Flying a plane that he wasn't necessarily familiar with. Flying a plane that he wasn't familiar with that was known to have problems, like of people of that would come to be known to have problems. So the, yeah, yeah. The report I just read came out in the seventies. Okay. So, but it's still, and that problem is, uh, based on apparently a lot of them not having a good visual understanding uh, where the horizon was Yeah, and basically which is what was happening. Right. So it's kind of like if you're driving at pitch darkness in your car and and this isn't the best comparison, pitch darkness in your car, like in an old country area, like let's say you didn't have headlights even, and let's say your car slowly drifts left. Right. Oh Yeah. And you don't notice it because it's happening so gradually over time that, you, you know, you need to remember to, you know, pull it to the right to correct it. And then suddenly you hit the side, the other side of the road, you know, yeah, <laughs> or you hit a ditch because you've veered off the side of the road because you didn't realize it was happening so gradually. Yeah. Insane. I mean, how many more odds can you have against you? Right. I think, you know? I, I think it's a pretty, op- uh, this is, Again, complete and other utter uh, conjecture here. I, I think it's pretty. You have an inexperienced pilot. Well, not just. Well, that's the thing, though. It's that with the also uh, thought to have 
following problems of, of that type of plane that other people have had later. True. That is if they let the plane get in that condition. Like if they let the plane get in that particular situation, yes, a more experienced pilot may not have let that happen. That's true. So the plane but, would likely have made it is the problem is the plane could take a lot of stress. So like if you yeah. put the, if you strain the plane too hard, it will break. But if you know, maybe not to do that, um, maybe they would have made it. I think they needed a dad pilot. Yeah. They needed an old grizzled man to, or, you know, somebody old and grizzled to fly. And, that plane. and, and I'd, I'd say a, a plane, uh, better equipped to handle, uh, uh, low visibility as well, because that was the I main thing. A bigger plane for a, a blizzard, you know. You think you'd get a bigger plane, yeah, but maybe it's a price thing. That's true. These are like affordable planes, like good affordable mm. planes. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention, probably one of the biggest things to come out, well, biggest things to happen as a result of this accident. You know, not necessarily, you know, kind of an external thing. We talked about there was like a tribute song. Yeah. Um. Probably one of the most famous songs in the world, Don McLean's American Pie came was a, is about the day really? the music died. Yes. Oh wow. Um it was number one in 1971 and immortalized February 3rd as the day the music died. And may very much have its own episode later down the line. Oh. There's a lot to that story. Uh, a particular favorite of Dakota's. What are your thoughts, Joe? Yeah, what else? I mean, they just had all the odds not in their favor. Right. For that plane to go like it did. I mean, there was a lot of things against them. Yeah, as far as the weather, the pilot, the plane. Yeah, man. I I don't know. I, I think, again, I, I'm kind of serious. I'm kind of skittish when it comes to flying. Like, I'll do it. But, like, charter planes would be pretty nervous about. And if I was to get on a plane... And uh, some bushy-tailed greenhorn came out, and it was going to be my pilot. I'd be like, oh, "That's that's cute. I'm going to need to see the the angry old pilot, please." Well, I mean, that's, give me your angriest, oldest, rudest pilot, please. Well, that's a, something that you never uh, that I've never thought about till now of the fact of like, there's there's always someone's every every pilot has a first time flying commercially. And it's not going to be me. I w- you don't know. It's not going to be me. We don't know. I, w- I don't usually uh, uh, you know, bet the pirate pilot, pilots you know, that come in. The pilot on like a like a seven forty seven pirates. Gear, <laughs> this be your captain speaking. <laughs> you want the pilot that's like, uh, I'm your captain here. Uh, you know, it, it says you're gonna we're gonna be there in about four hours. I'll get you there in three. Just buckle up. I kind of want the pilot that's like, (sighs) (laughs) this is your pilot speaking. We're going to get there. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all I need. And I'm like, this guy, this guy is annoyed because he had to come into work so much. Maybe he's a little tired, but that means he's got a lot of flight hours. Yeah. We're safe. His misery means I'm going to get to the end of this flight. Not bushy-tailed greenhorn going, wow, I hope this goes great. Hope. Hope. <laughs> hmm. I'm sure we'll be fine. 
I think I'm going to walk to Moorhead. <laughs> <Rather. laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Nope. Nope. So that is going to wrap it. Uh, well, any other thoughts? Uh, nope. 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 So uh, get, a, get an old disgruntled pilot and you should be safe. Yeah. Someone who just hates his job can't wait to get off and start drinking. You know what the, what the most comforting thing I can hear is? You're in good hands. What I need to hear is, I'm too old for this shit. And I'm like, <laughs> God, perfect. Got him. We'll be safe. Uh, this is your captain or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what he really don't want to hear is, this is your captain speaking. Why'd you do it, Sharon? This <laughs> 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 is, oh. <laughs> I won't make it there if I feel like it. <laughs> With Henry, really? <laughs> Just like, oh, God. <laughs> All right, so we're going to wrap up. Before this gets any worse, let's go ahead and wrap up episode one of season two. Um, we can just continue this for the, the B-sides. Just, yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much uh, for listening to the show. We have a, a couple announcements for you. Oh. Uh, soon, very soon, we're going to be launching our own website. Woo! Um, we'll be able to, uh, you'll be able to get exclusive Phantom Jukebox merch, and uh, you'll get some Ziggy merch as well. We've got, we've already oh. got two shirts designed. Uh, we just need essentially a place to put them. So uh, keep a lookout for that. We'll be definitely announcing that more as we get that uh, kind of finished. We went through like a rebranding, got a new logo going. Um, and with the return of our main show, um, uh, we are also going to, uh, be, uh, launching Patreon sometime soon. I don't have an exact date for it, but we're okay. going to have exclusive Patreon B-sides content, which is kind of, it's a mix of extra stuff we couldn't normally fit into an episode or, uh, kind of an interesting conversation that may not have merited an entire episode. Okay. Yeah. But it's still really interesting, and we thought we'd want to know. So we will be announcing that soon, and more YouTube content as well. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do some more stuff on yeah. YouTube this year. Yeah. So, um, our friends are doing some uh, cool stuff as well. Our uh, uh, good friends, the Happy Hour podcast, is now going to be called the Gray's Tap Room. They're doing a bit of rebranding. Oh, yes. So Happy Hour podcast is now becoming. The Gray's Tap Room. Um, if you're already like linked to them, all their stuff should transfer over. It's just going to be relabeled. Okay, I believe it should transfer over. But uh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, the, the Gray is a really cool last name. Um, and uh, the uh, host of Playlist Wars, uh, what's up, what's up, Brian, uh, has a new show called My Weekly Mixtape. So the ho- one of the hosts of Playlist Wars has a new show called My Weekly Mixtape. Oh, cool. You should check it out. Uh, and it celebrates the lost art of the mixtape. I mean, the closest I got to that was making my own, like, mix CDs. You know? like as Yeah, he, yeah. The mixtape is actually, like, recording a song from the radio while it's playing, hitting stop, waiting for the next couple songs, and really, really, like, sitting there recording and like, making a cassette. Like, a CD is, like, you go to some virus ridden mp3 ripper oh yeah <laughs> and uh you steal all these cool songs from youtube and um i guess the closest thing now 
like in modern day is like making a custom Spotify playlist for somebody. Yeah. 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 But uh, anyway, um, it's a cool concept. So check out Brian's show, my weekly mixtape and our good friends, the Gray's tap room and support and like local musicians support other indie podcasts, not just yeah. us. Yeah. Um, you it's know, a hard world out there. I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into these indie shows, especially like the ones that, uh, um, do the, you know, some people are part of like networks and they do are, you know, they work hard too, but there's some of them that are literally like, I think the, I guess the phrase is grassroots. Like we're doing this out of like my kitchen living room situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's other shows that like us that put in a lot of work, um, into their shows. And, uh, we hope that we are your cup of tea, but if we're not check out another indie podcast as well, yeah, yeah. you're definitely going to find something that suits your needs, but, but it means to you know, give us another shot. I mean, come on. Don't be, don't be so, don't be so hard <laughs> on us. We're really, really hard on us. Tell, tell your friends, tell your friends, tell your friends. Maybe they'll like us. I don't know. <laughs> if you don't uh, find someone who does. Yeah, yeah sure. You'll find them. <laughs> <laughs> Just begging people. Please. Please. <laughs> anyway, so that is it for the show. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, welcome back to the show. Going yes. to be bi-weeklies on Monday. Season two. Season two. Uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of cool stuff coming uh, for this year. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Joe. Thank for, you, Ty. Uh, for being a part of this. Really excited for this season. Oh, I, I can't wait. I know I don't know what's planned, but I know what's coming. Oh, this your your expressions on this episode were just, just <laughs> no. I can't wait for the next one. I think the next one's the Valentine's Day episode. Yes. Got a lot of good things planned. So anyway, yeah, this was kind of a longer episode, but I think the other ones going forward are gonna be trying to stick around an hour. Okay. So this one's just kind of like a hey. Let's let's see how we do. See how we do. <laughs> Holding a lot in. Yes, twenty twenty three. Seed to two. So uh, with that, that is the end of the show. So please tune in next time. Until next time.